Welcome back to the AEC Disruptors Podcast, your platform to help push the AEC industry forward. I'm your host, Christopher Dell, and joining me today is my co-host, Jackson Sinsat. What's going on, Jackson? Not much, Christopher. Excited to be back for yet another episode. Oh, yeah. This one was a good one. And this one was interesting because we got to talk to uh, Paul Wintour. He's the founder of Parametric Monkey. He's in Australia. So we were doing this late at night over here in the States. And, uh, you know, I mentioned in the episode, it was, it was weird for me to schedule an episode for a Tuesday, but it show up on my calendar on a Monday. But Paul, I followed him on LinkedIn for a while. I've enjoyed a lot of his chats. He does a lot um, around innovation. He's an architect. We learned during the episode, his background is incredibly diverse in terms of the you know, places he's worked, the countries he's worked. And then we dive into uh, this new product that they're putting out, Metric Monkey, which is really trying to help that front end feasibility design. Hearing his perspective of the industry, I thought was interesting. You know, Jackson, what do you think coming from a construction perspective, listening to Paul? Yeah, it was really good having Paul on. Um, and it's also really good that the AEC Disruptors is now worldwide, you know, worldwide guests. Oh, yeah. Um, Paul was, you know, another incredibly sharp guest, a really impressive guy. Um, you know, hearing his perspective on the industry, especially from that, you know, front end conceptual design perspective, you know, whenever your boots on the ground, building a building, you don't really think about things like, is this building, you know, the shade from this building, is this going to cover up an entire park? Um, or, you know, things like that, that, you know, architects and engineers think about real early on in the process and, you know, his tool metric monkey kind of tries to help solve some of those problems through automation. Um, but you know, the chat wasn't just about metric monkey. It was about the industry in general and how automation can help, you know, not only workflows for designers, but also, um, those in construction management as well. He had some stern words for the, the GC side. You, yeah, uh... <laughs> that, that was, that was uh, a little towards the end of the episode. Um, you know, a, a, a few one, two punches, um, but you know, nothing that, uh, you know, um, is without merit. So <laughs> no, it was a great talk. We enjoyed having him again. He's a great guest, a very knowledgeable guy. And we could have talked for a long time, but, uh, but again, this one was a good one. We hope you get to, uh, listen in, enjoy it and check back for more. Welcome back for another episode today. Joining us is Paul Wintour. Uh, he is the founder of Parametric Monkey. I think you're a licensed architect. Uh, excited to have you. How's it going, man? Yeah, it's good. Um, it's great to be here today. And um, thanks very much for, for having me. Absolutely. I followed you quite a bit and listened to a lot of different talks all over the board. Um, before we talk um, about Metric Monkey, which is one of our main points, you want to give a little bit of background of yourself, kind of how you got into this side of the business? Yeah. So I, um, I studied here in Australia, uh, doing architecture and I was in a, you know, pretty good, pretty good role and paid pretty well in a, in a comfortable, um, architect's office. 
but I kind of had a niche to, to travel and I went over to Europe, um, you know, for what would be one or two years. It ended up being a decade. <laughs> um, and my first kind of um, stop was uh, the Netherlands. So, you know, I was really interested in like OMA and the type of work they were doing. Um, and I got there and I kind of realised pretty quick talking to a whole bunch of other, um, you know, Erasmus students, so international um, students on exchange, that I just graduated and I was already kind of redundant. <laughs> My, you know, I, I had just learned AutoCAD and here were these, you know, students that were doing 3D Max and visualisations and I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> I'm so far behind. <laughs> I spent six years doing all this stuff and, you know, these guys are going to graduate in one or two years. Like, you know, it's just not doesn't sit very well with me. So after, after my visa ran out there, I, I moved to London. I wasn't quite ready to come back. And, you know, I'd sort of made the decision, you know, internally that I wanted to go back and do some study. So, um, you know, I worked for a lot of the big commercial practices there, like, um, you know, Grimshaw and HOK and things like that. Um, and then I got a scholarship to go to the Architectural Association in London um, and that really uh, changed how I thought about architecture. So, you know, it, it's one of the most, I guess, respected institutes in the world. And there's a reason why. And it's, you know, a lot of universities, um, their main aim is to do graduates that can get jobs. Um, and the AA is not about that. They basically want to kill off everything you know and they want to kind of, um, you know, a lot of it's quite speculative and going, you know, what is possible if we, didn't, if we weren't constrained with how things are today? And so that really kind of set quite a different career trajectory for me. So after that, you know, it was the time when organisations were just starting to get into BIM into computational design, you know, they might be their first major project, you know, they might have done one or two in it. Um, and so the, the kind of role of a BIM manager didn't really exist yet. You know, it was still the CAD manager that took on some of the BIM responsibilities. And so over time, I just kind of slowly migrated into that sort of position as, you know, first doing it, implementing stuff on a project by project basis. Um, then it became more at a, you know, practice-wide level, you know, running kind of projects and integrating it through the practice until it kind of, you know, became, you know, almost a full-time job in itself, um, you know, and it was sort of became a dedicated role rather than something that you did in parallel with a project. Um, and so, yeah, after, after kind of, Eight years abroad, I moved to Hong Kong and did a short stint. And then when I moved back to Australia, uh, I had all of this knowledge and was kind of looking at how I could use it. And it kind of struck me that if I really wanted to do what I wanted to do, I would have to kind of set up my own consultancy and do it that way. Um, you know, I could struggle for years trying to... Um, change an organisation from the inside. 
Um, but often it's a lot easier to change things from the outside. Um, and that's what I've been doing for probably the last three and a half years. That's a, you have quite the travel background and I totally agree with that last point because I was actually having a conversation with another architect the other day and we talked about how, and maybe this isn't business in general, but people would rather listen to a consultant who would tell them probably the exact same thing is like, you know, somebody sitting inside at a desk. Um, but coming from that outside perspective, I don't know, it sounds different, but, um, I totally agree. Having to go out on your own in a way kind of does help from the outside versus that organic change that, uh, I think a lot of these firms struggle with. And we've actually had a lot of talks that are similar to this. I know this isn't our talk, but, um, about how, especially in our industry, how do we rethink, like if we were starting a firm today, how could we rethink what we've been doing for so long? Because we do kind of get so stuck in how, you know, this industry is supposed to work. And even this last year, I think a lot of us have realized that even that's not real. Um, so I do appreciate you and firms like yourself that are really trying to help. I, I pulled your website up again today and I was looking at it and I love like the simple line of help businesses do better things. And, uh, it seems so simple, but I mean, I like that message of, you know, thinking differently. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You raise that point about how would you start a business today? And that was the exact thought process that I went through. And, you know, so much of the problems in industry are because they've inherited those from previous decisions. And, you know, many architectural practices have been around for decades if not centuries and um it's very hard to change that but if you go okay day one all right let's go you know cloud-based server or you know how do we how do we market ourselves how do we hire people how do we um you know how do we share what we do so you know even a lot of companies their social media is about here's a building we completed um they don't really talk about the process they went through or the, the things that went wrong. It's just here are a few images and now we're on to the next one. So, you know, they, they haven't even engaged in that sort of, um, you know, how social media works and how people want to start engaging with organisations. When you were going from um, country to country, um, it, it's amazing, you know, all of the different places that you've worked, I'm sure that, you know, you know, more than a few different languages. Um, but what were some of the main differences that you noticed in, um, the ways that, you know, AEC professionals in different regions, um, adopted to technology or how far along they were, or just, you know, their general thought around it? Yep. No, that's a great question. So, in Australia, the tendency is um, architects will generally, so I'll, I'll talk about from an architectural background because that's obviously you know, where I am. Um, you, you tend to follow a project from beginning to end. You know, people want to understand all aspects of it. And, you know, ultimately it's probably about setting yourself up so that you can go out and set up your own practice, that you have all the skills through all the different phases to handle. When I moved to, to Europe, um, 
it's quite different there. So you'll generally have two separate teams. One will be the front end conceptual design, and then you will have a delivery um, sort of team as well. Um, and they don't really talk too much. You know, they're discrete teams, um, very different skill sets, and it's probably much more of a, you know, production line. Um, and the types of skills for, you know, the conceptual design, you know, there was a lot of model making, a lot of illustrator, a lot of, it was a lot about the presentation of it. Um, in London, it was probably, probably pretty similar to that, um, except you get to work on much bigger projects. So you're working in projects in, you know, the Middle East or in China or, you know, maybe even South America. Um, and then the relationship of the architect to the client changes. You know, it's very often because it's an international project is, um, you know, the architect will do the concept and then they'll hand it over to a lead architect. So there's not a lot of, um, or sorry, hand it over to a local architect. So there's not always the consideration about buildability or local regulations it's more about, you know, bringing in the, the hotshot international company, yeah. um, you know, creating something fabulous that you can market and say this was designed by, you know, so-and-so. Um, and then, you know, it's handed over to the local architects to kind of make it work. Um, and then in China, so I spent, you know, a bit of time in Hong Kong and, um, you know, got to travel up to Beijing and Shanghai quite a bit there. Um and it's crazy. So if you think wherever you are in the world, if you think architecture is fast paced, it's nothing compared to China. Um, and the lesson I learned there was that whatever you draw first time, that's what gets built. There is no iterative process. It's they want the concept and sometimes you know, that might be a day, it might be two days for like a whole retail shopping centre. Um, you know, some of the bigger ones we've done, you know, maybe they spent five, six weeks on. And once you send it out the door, the the local design institute, which is the, the government agency responsible for delivering it, so they do the DD, design development and construction drawings, they already get started on it. So any sort of refinements that you do after that, they're not going to get um, included into the design. It's just for fun at that point. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever you draw, you got to make sure that it's, it's right and you're happy with it first time. Are, are you saying yeah. there, there aren't a whole lot of RFIs there? <laughs> no, it's, um, it, it's like kind of terrifying actually. <laughs> <laughs> how, how fast it moves. Um, so I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, there was one building where, you know, it was a high rise and I think we had designed a scissor stairs, you know, stairs that kind of go up. So in theory, they're two egress points. And it was a bit of a grey area for you know, whether that was acceptable or not because, you know, you needed to have more than one, but technically these were two in, you know, in one core. And rather than wait to go through some sort of, um, 
you know, approval process or verify that it could work. Um, the client just said, just chuck in an extra one. So they just duplicated it, moved it over, done and dusted. Like there was, <laughs> there was no redesign. They just accepted that, okay, the building is going to be way less efficient, but time is of the essence and, you know, that's it. <laughs> we don't have time to look up the code book for this one. Just go. <laughs> well, you know, you could obviously, you know, position it in a certain way or make it more economical or work something out, but it's like, no, we're just gonna we're just gonna start building it now. You know, the footings are being dug. It's interesting. That's a, that's an interesting question. Cause I know, you know, I didn't think about how different countries may work and how they adopt their technology. Cause I mean, here in the States, we have a little bit of like that design team. Uh, some firms, you have the design team that puts something together and they hand it over to another group. And, and, um, I've seen as much like my wife, it works for an architecture firm and she's part of the design studio and it'll be months after she touched a project and they come back to her. Cause they're like, Oh, we tweaked it. We need some more renderings. We need you to help it. And there is this, huge disconnect. And it's interesting, you know, hearing that and your perspective of those, and then looking at something like, um, you know, some of the tools you all or your team is working on that starts to bring some of that initial feasibility design, you know, all the way through the project. And how does that, you know, how does your past influence something like a, a metric monkey? Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, metric monkey, you know, it's been sort of a, a bit of a hunch for, for a long time about, okay, there's got to be a better way <laughs> of how we do it. And, um, you know, it, it emerged from, you know, having a, a boss stand over me in the, you know, um, competition phase and go, oh, can you move that a little bit this way? Can you move it a bit that way? Or what if we do this and that? Um and you know, Revit doesn't deal with that well at all. So, you know, if you and just that boss doesn't that, like hearing that either. Like the boss yeah, hates hearing. They just want I can't done, do that. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so if you think of something quite mundane, like okay, if you change it from an office to an apartment, they have a different floor to floor height. So it's not just changing the color; it's understanding, you know, now what all the levels are and you know, what the GFA is and so forth. Um, so, you know, that's how it's often done. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you can say, all right, well, we can automate all of this through computational design. But the difficulty with that is that you need to know what to ask for um, and you need a bit of a, you know, a runway that you can develop something that you can then iterate quickly. Um, so, you know, one of the things that you see is, you know, these students, they come out of university, they're, they're quite technically capable. They may have done some visual programming and and they, they get into an office-based environment and they say, we need this. And they, they say, okay, well, I can, you know, create a script or, uh, you know, we can do something. And they're like, okay, great. How long will that take? Oh, I don't know, one week, two weeks. And they're like, no, no, we need it tomorrow. So let's just do it this way um, and so there's never that investment and so what metric monkey really started to look at was how do we how do we fix that how do we how do we change the dynamic of how projects are conceived um, and how can we sort of iterate through the process for for a better outcome 
Um, how would you, cause you know, a lot of people may not have even seen metric monkey. How would you describe her or, you know, when you're giving your elevator pitch for metric monkey, <laughs> what do you, what do you say it is? Um, so it's for architects and urban designers who are sort of dissatisfied with slow and laborious, um, and intensive, um, workflows. Um, and it uses automation to provide significant time savings and accuracy. And that's a big one, accuracy, and we, we can come back to that in a minute. So unlike, unlike Revit, um, it's easy to use and it provides real-time feedback. Um, that's essentially the, you know, the pitch. So if you think about Revit, um, you know, it's using a BIM process and I have serious problems with some of the concepts around BIM, um, which maybe we can revisit in a minute. In a minute, but um, you know everything's so labor intensive, and there is this gradual model refinement that that happens. So, um, you know, a fundamental concept of BIM is around: we start with something generic because we don't have all the information. And over time, we refine that from an LOD 100 to a 200, 300, um, as more and more information becomes available. And so inherent in that process is a waterfall methodology. So, you know, we'll do concepts, we'll go to the client, we'll get sign off, and then we'll proceed to schematic design. You know, then we'll go to design development through to construction. And so what tends to happen is that at the end of a phase, um, you know, there'll be a checklist of things that we need to comply with to make sure that we can pass through to the next stage and we'll run some sort of analyses. And, you know, that might be area, it might be environmental analysis. And by the time you got to that stage, it's, it's too late. So, <laughs> especially so, if you're in China. <laughs> yeah. So in most cases you, you know, consider a competition, for example, um, you run an area calc at, you know, 10 PM the night before it's due and you inevitably under the requirements. <laughs> and so you got two options, you, you know, either work all night to make it better or you fudge it and you, you know, say that we'll fix it later. Um, so if there is any analysis, it tends to happen once um, and there's no feedback loop. So you get too far down the line before there's any, any kind of feedback. And so Metric Monkey is really trying to change that dynamic by saying, okay, as you design, you're getting continuous feedback in the model that you're working on. So you don't need to upload it to a cloud-based server, run an analysis and download it. You don't have to export it to Excel and do some, you know, formulas. Um, it's all happening real time in your actual model. Um, and so I'm hoping that that approach will give us actual better buildings. Um, you know, we're not telling architects or designers how to build. We're simply providing the information there about how it's currently performing and then allowing them to make the appropriate sort of decisions. So 
on the construction side, anytime, you know, it comes to new technology and, you know, there's so much coming out right now, especially over the last 10 years, probably a lot more to come. Um, you know, it, you have to toe a line. I feel like between creating a product that's both intuitive, but also innovative and on the construction side, it almost seems like they're so far behind that being intuitive is much more important right now than being innovative because of adoption Mm -hmm. on the design side, you know, you all have been using technology a lot longer than my friends on the construction side, specifically for design, you know? Um, but I'm sure you still do have to toe that line between being intuitive and innovative. Um, so what are your thoughts in regard to, you know, towing that line? Yeah. So, you know, I think a big, a big part of the problem is that unless people see the alternative, they, they can't necessarily imagine what it's going to be like. So to give you an example, one of the projects we did was um, parametric modeling and digital fabrication um, for a sun shading system at a university. And we were working on the subcontractor side. So um, it wasn't with the architect, it was with the person that was actually going to manufacture and, and install the process. And so we had a meeting with the, the main contractor, you know, the general contractor, and they wanted to map out how long this would take to make sure that, you know, we could hit our, um, you know, due date. And they said to me, okay, once you have your model set up, how long will it take you to produce the construction fabrication drawings? And, you know, I sort of looked at them, you know, there's a room full of middle-aged men with grey hair that have been in the industry a long time. And I said, oh, you know, probably about half an hour, but let's allow half a day for a bit of Q&A. And they're like, no, you've misunderstood, like, you know, what we want is like the whole set of construction drawings, you know, for each part, each material, we all kind of is. And they're like, how, you know, how long will that take? And I said, well, once we've got the model set up, you know, it'll take about half a day. And they're like, no, you've misunderstood. And so in the end, I just said, okay, two weeks. And they're like, okay, great. And they plug that into their, um, their Gantt chart and they're like, okay, it will take two weeks. And what they couldn't grasp was that because everything had been done parametrically um, and everything was automated, we weren't drawing anything by hand. Um, And so if we needed to make a change, we would just rerun the entire construction set. We wouldn't have to, you know, go to a draftsman and make changes. But because they had never seen that way of working, they didn't understand how to how to engage with it um and so sometimes you sort of have to you know not lie but um you know play to play to their experiences um and you know ease them into the process about well actually this is you know how we can do things um and that's kind of like how i've tried to approach it 
where, you know, if you, if you just go in and say, we're going to change the industry by doing X, Y, and Z, you know, people are going to get pretty scared and um, um, probably not believe you. But if you can, you know, show them how you can automate or do a certain aspect of that um, and then snowball from there, uh, I think that's a much, you know, better solution. The AEC Disruptors podcast is brought to you by Applied Software. With solutions for the modern project, Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering clients and champion innovation with real-world expert consultants. Their comprehensive array of solutions for the AEC, MEP, and manufacturing has a singular focus, helping you achieve higher performance. With software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, Applied Software has you covered. Visit asti.com and let them know we sent you. I mean, we all have these preconceived notions of how the industry should work. Uh, you know, we've all sat through talks or given talks about, you know, the industry will be disrupted if it hasn't already a little bit. And, and we've even talked on our podcast here about, you know, I'm pretty convinced that who will disrupt it may not even be in the, I mean, they may be here, but they're probably not in the industry because they don't have any of those preconceived notions. And, you know, I was even thinking a little bit back in the day whenever I, you know, I, I learned in school when I went to college, we, we hand drew our first semester just to know how, and the, the mentality was you need to understand how to draw by hand so that when you get into using Revit, you can appreciate how to use it there. And at the time that made sense to me. And then, you know, even talking now and listening, I start to wonder is even that, do I need to know how to draw by hand? Because I need to almost forget that aspect of it. Cause the idea of just totally redoing everything, you know, from scratch, like you had to do is so much faster and intuitive once you realize it. But from my perspective, you know, I was told like, you gotta learn how to hand draw so you can get your line weights ready for, you know, when you do it by computer, then you understand how the computer works. Well, do I, do I need to know that, you know, and then how much we've had discussions with, people from academia and you realize like how influential that aspect of our profession really becomes is at that college level or university level and how we influence what those individuals start to, to take and tell, you know, their employers as they move through. Yeah. And I'm, I think, you know, in many ways, the institutions are failing that they're, you know, setting up architects for now rather than the future. And, you know, one example, you know, students are pretty tech savvy, you know, they pick things up very quick. So, you know, a decade ago when I, if I was trying to teach someone how to use Revit and they came from a CAD background and you said, okay, well, you know, once you create the model, you can automatically create a section, you know, and, you know, it blew their mind and you had to spend quite a bit of time to explain that concept. But then, you know, you go to university and it, it's like a, a throwaway line. They're like, yeah, of course it does. Why, why wouldn't it? It makes sense. And so I think in many ways universities are sort of talking down to students about, you know, simplifying the process. Um, and I think, you know, there definitely is a need to understand, you know, how architecture works, the, you know, the concepts, you know, 
understand how space works, the histories, the theories, you know, that's definitely important. But um, we also need to recognise that in the future, that's probably going to be in the minority um, about how buildings are conceived um, and that, you know, over time, artificial intelligence, machine learning, computational design are going to play a bigger and bigger role in that. So there's a bit of a romantic notion of what an architect does. Um, and that notion gets reinforced when you get into practice. And so, you know, I talked about the, the graduates that first come into the office and, um, you know, very quickly they start to conform to how the practice works. And if you look at the people running the practices, um, you know, they sketch by hand, they have a laptop, they're very busy, they delegate, you know, what they design to others to model. So there becomes this perception that if I want to be um, a practice leader or run my own business, then that's, that's what you do. You know, I have to sketch by hand. I have to be, you know, on my, on my laptop, you know, working remote and someone else will deal with the details. And I think what's starting to change is that, you know, a few organisations have started to make um, technology leaders, um, you know, shareholders, principals in an organisation. And that hasn't really happened before. Um, you know, there's always been a bit of a hierarchy between the people that design and then the technologists behind that. Um, and so I think, you know, having a different role model for how people can move through an organisation um, is quite different and important. And once we have that, I think we'll start to see much greater change in the industry. That's interesting concept because I know... Um in my past life, you know, I, I worked in the profession and then I moved to this side and be more of on the consultant side. And, you know, you would look at those in various positions of the organization and they would be just like you described. And there'd be times that you'd think, well, I'd like to be at that level, but I don't want to do what that individual does. I don't think I need to do it the way that they do it. And then I started to be met with this, this idea of that the only way to be that's that leader is to be a licensed architect or to be a very specific type of person, because that's what everyone has done. And I'd hear that a lot because, um, I went to a school that it was a four year, not a professional degree, um, for my architecture degree. Then I have like a master's in something else. So for me to get licensed in the States, I had to do an additional two years of school. So I would always get met with that. Well, you can't be this because you don't have that. And it's like, well, I don't think that's true. You know, yes, you have to have a licensed professional that can stamp the drawings and there's a legality there, but we are stuck to this notion that to be at a certain level, you have to have certain credentials. And so now seeing these folks that are more tech focused being, you know, even having like a CTO and, you know, even chief strategy officers and architecture firms, there's not a ton of them but it, you're starting to see the organization change a little bit. And I think you're right. That's the only way we'll see great change. Otherwise we're just doing it the way it's always been done. Mm. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, when I go into organizations, um, you know, one of the first questions inevitably is 
um, you know, what's your background and how did you get into this? And there's a bit of a stigma that, okay, well, you must be a, a technologist or you must be a jaded architect that, you know, you've given up on design and you just want to focus on standards or something. And it's actually, you know, changes the dynamic quite a lot when you go, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm an architect um, in two countries and I'm into this because I'm passionate about design, you know, and the way that we're going about it is killing design, not making it better. So, you know, how, how, do we, how do we change it? How do we improve it so that you actually get more time to design and not, you know, spend your time on, you know, making area schedules or all sort of silly things like that? Um, and that shifts the dynamic quite a lot. Um, and then, you know, they're much more open and receptive to different ways of thinking because they know that you've been in the trenches and you've experienced what they've had to experience. Um. You know, I, I was excited to bring you on because I've listened to a lot of different talks that you've done and a lot of different, and you have a, a varied perspective that I really appreciate. And so what I'm really interested in a little bit now, if we could sort of push it a little bit towards Jackson's side and, you know, you talk a lot about, <clears throat> I've heard you talk a lot about our industry. You're very passionate about our industry, especially on the design side. You know, what is your perspective of our relationship with the construction side and, you know, how does that need to evolve and, and get people like Jackson more involved in these initial conversations with say like a metric monkey and all of those type of things that you all are pursuing right now? Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is kind of ongoing, um, let's say research or <laughs> ideas are still forming around around this because um, you know coming from architecture it was quite a change to move to you know the contractor side of um, things and you know I've discovered a lot of issues which you know when you think about it um, just makes sense they're common sense it's like well of course they are but you know the first one is around um, the whole construction side is geared towards inefficiency. So um, most subcontractors make their money or their margin um, in variations. So they will go in low on a, on a tender, they'll win the commission, and then it becomes this, uh, you know, not litigious, but, you know, quite aggressive, that's out of scope, you didn't include this, we didn't price that, um, that's an extra... And, you know, that's just the way that it is. Um, and because they've already been appointed and, you know, there's a, it's a waterfall system, you can't really argue with them too much because the building needs to be get built and, and liquidated damages kicks in and all of this. So, you know, the client ends up paying far more for something which, you know, should really be done. So there's that side of things. And then the other part of it is around the initial um, sort of contractor being awarded the project. And what I've witnessed is a massive disconnect between what BIM managers say and want and what actually gets done. And many of them live in a bit of a fantasy world where we say, okay, this project's going to be um, modelled to LOD 400, here are all the standards, we're going to have a BIM kickoff meeting, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Um, and 
when a contractor is tendering for a project, I mean, and this might be different in the US, so bear with me, but they'll look at all of this and their main priority is to win the project, okay? Um, and so price is the first thing. And unfortunately, what tends to happen is they'll say, okay, we're running out of time. We don't have time. Um, 2D is cheaper. Just uh, do it in 2D, get your drawings. And then if the client demands it at the end, then we'll do a BIM deliverable. And so the whole concept of why BIM exists falls down because it becomes a deliverable rather than a tool to, um, you know, change the process for good. Um, and I don't know how you change that dynamic. Um, and I think what's starting to happen is, you know, people are looking at alternatives to general contractors. And I think we're going to start to see more, you know, vertically integrated companies like, you know, Katera, um, but also, you know, prefab and modular type um, companies where you start to eliminate all of those problems to begin with. Um, so it's not about fixing the problem. It's about eliminating the problem altogether. Um, but it certainly, certainly needs a lot of attention. There, there were a lot of tough pills to swallow there. Um, <laughs> Sounds no. exactly how it is here. <laughs> that, that was, uh, yeah, that... <laughs> This is me getting back for, so the, one of the last episodes, Jackson went and got his own construction professor and it was just like, all they talked about was their college and how great it was. So this is now us just ganging up on Jackson just a little bit. <laughs> no, I, I, I really appreciate what you said about the, you know, BIM bottle just turning into another box that gets checked just to get your money basically, you know, because, um, you know, I've definitely been a part of projects where the BIM plan and the kickoff and everything started off and we had such high hopes for using the model the entire time, whatever's not in the model, you know, needs to move. Um, you know, everything needs to be in the model and, you know, prefabrication and everything like that. But there are times where you know, things either upstream in the process or downstream in the process impact that BIM plan considerably. And, you know, we had gotten to the point where on one of my last projects where we just threw our hands up and we stick built an entire floor for plumbing, even though we had it all modeled and everything like that. And it was really frustrating for me because you know, why have that bit model if we're just going to throw our hands up, ask to print drawings and stick build. And I think it's, you know, something that contractors at times need to take a look in the mirror and, you know, realize how much that bit model helps you. Um, but one of the things that, um, you know, I read about on your website is, you know, you do, you know, have a big focus on prefabrication. And I think that's, kind of the only answer right now for the labor shortage that we have in the States when it comes to, you know, construction professionals. 
Um, so one of the questions I had is, you know, why is it so important for designers? Why is it important for designers to design buildings that both cater to prefabrication, but you know, that caters to prefabrication, but you're not sacrificing any of the creativity that you have as a designer. Yeah. So this is a topic I'm just kind of working through now and, you know, ideas are kind of forming about mm. how, to, how to approach this. And, um, you know, what's, what's happened locally for me is that the, um, you know, the public schools um, here in New South Wales have launched a massive um, DFMA, so Design for Manufacturing and Assembly, um, about, you know, how to build more schools, how to do it quicker, how to, you know, do it. And, you know, that's triggered a whole bunch of conversations about, well, you know, why, why is prefab and modular continue to fail you know it's been around for a long time and you know the reasons that i can think of is one that architects um you know buildings tend to look prefab or modular you know there's an aesthetic that that goes with it um and an architect will generally not conceive a building as modular like it will generally be conceived as a you know traditional build and then only later if, um, you know, the client requests it or the contractor comes on board that will they kind of switch methodologies and, and look at it from a, a, you know, a modular perspective. And then the second is that most of the companies require enormous amounts of capital to make it happen. So, you know, you look at Katera, how many, you know, was it $2 billion or they had $1.2 and they just got bailed out for, um, you know, X billion more, um, money, money is not the problem. You know, if you've got a billion dollars, you can set up factories, you can automate it, but there must be something else that's going wrong in that process. Um, and I think, you know, one way to deal with it is that you start with a highly detailed model. So, you know, if we looked at the, that BIM process that we spoke about, um, you have a gradual model refinement from LOD 100 through to LOD 400. So you can flip that on its head and say, okay, well, let's start with um, assemblies. Let's start with LOD 400 models so that we're not reinventing the wall, but we're, you know, reinventing the wheel, but we're kind of reconfiguring what those kitter parts can do. Um, but then you come up against the, the hurdle where um, a bit like interior designers is no one wants to invest a lot of money creating those digital assets because there's no kind of a, um, economies of scale. So, you know, an interior designer might spend time modelling a piece of furniture to get it into Revit. But then they go to their next project and they've picked a completely different piece of furniture and they have to kind of remodel it again. And so for architects, you know, they don't, they don't necessarily have the economies of scale to warrant the investment of creating that, that library to begin with, nor do they have the expertise. Um, and so how to deal with that? I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I think um, mass customization is a good starting point where 
you have some sort of design freedom for architects, but you're still harnessing, um, you know, the modular sort of kit of parts that, you know, prefab brings with it. I wonder if we'll see um, firms start partnering more with like manufacturers, you know, like why would I need to model everything if I could just partner with Herman Miller and they model everything and, or, you know, you, you kind of alluded to it earlier in that, you know, as an industry, we don't share with each other a whole lot. And I think that might also make this a bigger issue because we won't be able to benefit from our peers. You know, there's no really like open source type of network that exists within our industry outside of the, the, the obvious things that you and I may do in visual programming world. But, you know, may, maybe it really is a matter of, wanting to put, you know, if I make this really fantastic chair that everyone needs putting it out there and getting past this notion of, you know, that's my IP and I own that. And, and we start to open it up from that. I, you know, I don't know, I, but I do think the kit of parts is really the, the answer. You know, I, I think a lot of people, a lot of times want to go think back to Legos and although manufacturing or DFMA is not the same as equating to Legos, it's still like the overarching concept of, I only have like a fixed number of pieces that I can use, but you know, at that point, what I can create is only limited by my own imagination. And, you know, I, I, I kind of think back to, there was a program I played with a long time ago. It was off the Lego website. You could build your Lego, you could hit a button and it would generate a book for you to put it together. And I think of, like construction documents in the same way. Like, why do I need to be dimensioning and doing all these things when I could just build what I need, hit the play button and let it generate the most optimal way to build this thing and spit it back out. But, um, I don't know. I think it's an interesting research to be focusing on of how we pursue it. Cause at least in the States and I assume the same is there, we keep getting hit with this idea of, you know, it's the least productive industry. We, have to, to meet the population demands, hit a certain amount of people. We have labor shortages, you know, throw climate change on top of all of that. And so I think someone will have to find the answer. And I, th I think what's starting to change too, is if you, if you look at, you know, most buildings are an assembly of parts, you know, it's, it's the rare kind of building that's, you know, like the Zaha did where everything's kind of custom. But generally it's, you know, an assembly of, um, you know, available parts. And so in the past what used to happen, I don't know, I don't know how old you are and if you remember this, but, um, you know, most architects... We'll see what you say. <laughs> <laughs> most architects would have a product library. And this is, this is kind of my first, you know, task when I, when I started in architecture. And you'd get these product reps come in and they'd be like, we're here to update your library and they'd open up their ring binder folder and they'd put in the new product details and it was your job to keep it current so that when an architect wanted to specify something, they'd go to the library, find what they want. Okay, you know, fast forward 15, 20 years, um, you know, we can get that information off the website. And depending on the organization, you may be able to get a Revit family or, you know, something similar, some sort of digital asset. But what's starting to happen now is that manufacturers are starting to kind of build, you know, Revit plugins or, um, 
automation routines that you know directly connect with the model so you know we've done one for a ceiling manufacturer you know you feed in your, your footprint of the ceiling and it will generate their system to fabrication levels you know in your model um, and so as more and more suppliers and subcontractors start to to do that to put in their systems almost a bit like a product placement um, it's going to make it much easier to, um, to you know, automate the different aspects of a building. Um, and so I think we'll definitely see more of that, you know, in the next kind of five or ten years. So one of the main topics we like to touch on is sustainability in both the design process and the construction process. And, you know... There's a lot of automation that comes with um, your product. And how does that uh, incorporate sustainability into the design process? Yeah. Uh, and you're talking about environmental sustainability or like, you know, someone's mental health <laughs> sustainability? I was going more the environmental route, but if you'd like to touch on the mental health as well, <laughs> take yeah, it where so, it goes. Yeah. So I think, you know, the, the tendency that the industry is moving towards is more and more regulations around building performance. And that's only going to get, um, you know, bigger and more, um, you know, harder to deal with um, than easier. And so, you know, particularly here in Australia, you know, we have very stringent regulations around um you know, solar access and overshadowing and, and how it's performing. And, you know, part of my travels has kind of highlighted how, how important planning regulations are to the built form. So, you know, if you think about Manhattan, um, you know, a lot of the built forms are based on getting sun to the street. Um, if you look at uh, the UK, they have what's called the right to light and it's about protecting sun to neighbouring windows that are more than 20 years old. Um, you know, if you look at Hong Kong, a lot of the build forms are to get um, natural ventilation into every single room. You know, that's where you get these cookie-cutter shapes. You know, you can't have an internalised bathroom for example it must have a window um, and then you come to you know somewhere like australia and uh we don't or we care less about the street <laughs> and we care more about the balcony and your living space you know it's more about your own kind of protection and so different different cities and countries um prioritize different aspects of um, environmental performance and so I think what I'm trying to do with Metric Monkey is um, to evaluate a building beyond just area calcs. Um, so, like, I had some stats here um, that I did through my market research, and something like a third of all people do no environmental analyses at all. Um, so companies tend to do feasibility studies for free for existing clients. Um, they tend to throw recent grads on it because they're doing it for free and they don't want to burn through fees. Um, and because of all of this, they're not really incentivized to do 
you know, top-notch design. It's okay, well, let's do some area calcs and then we'll, you know, deal with all the other um, issues later once we're commissioned. But the problem with that approach is that the further down the line you go, the harder it is to change. Um, and so what starts of, uh, okay, let's just get it done out the door, very quickly becomes the concept that has to get polished and refined rather than, you know, completely rethought. So what I'm trying to do is really make running analyses as quick and easy as possible in that process so that they get implemented um, as early as possible. And you can prioritise which analysis is the most important. So, you know, in Australia, if you can see the the opera house, then, you know, that's probably going to take precedence over, you know, you know, facing south or something like that. Or for you, it would be facing north. You know, getting no sun is probably okay if you can see the opera house, for example. Um, or, you know, the Middle East where it's probably, you know, hot everywhere, <laughs> orientation, you know, may not be a key factor and it may be more about views to, to something else. Um, so you can, you know, we provide most of them and then you can sort of prioritise about what it is, you know, you think as the designer is most important, um, you know, for that particular project. Paul, I uh, I really appreciate you joining us today. It was it was interesting one to hear about your whole background because, like I said, I've I've listened to a lot of your talks, but I've never caught your background. So it is um, it's a, it's a great background. And so, if people were looking wanted to learn more about Metric Monkey, where would you where would you send them? Uh, so there's metricmonkey.io, which is the um, sort of the new home of Metric Monkey. Um, it has its own sort of social channels um but if you also you know follow parametric monkey then you know we'll be sharing um a lot of that information as well this is great man i really do appreciate you joining us today it's uh it was a pleasure to talk to you thanks for listening to the aec disruptors podcast enjoy this episode leave us a rating or review while sharing with your friends and co-workers i'd love to hear from you send me a linkedin request or follow our linkedin page and let me know if there's a topic you'd like to hear You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The AEC Disruptors is directed by Christopher Riddell, produced by Todd Wyant, edited by Eric Daniel, and co-hosted by Jackson Sensat. The AEC Disruptors is an applied software production, copyright applied software 2021.